Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Oil trading on the NYMEX below $70 a barrel. Here to tell us more about oil and fossil fuel is John Kilduff. He is the founding partner of Again Capital. John, always a pleasure. Why do you think the price of oil is going lower? Well, there was a real sudden uh, development uh, in Libya uh, yesterday uh, morning. Uh, it was announced that the two warring factions that had uh, basically been in the process of stopping or halting uh, Libya's oil exports uh, resolve their differences. There's some actual rumors out there that it was spurred upon by President Trump, of all things. Uh, and this oil is rapidly coming back to the market. We're getting more and more good news almost by the hour here, Pim. And it makes a big difference. You're talking about getting about 700,000 barrels a day back online fairly rapidly. And you add that to the recent increases in production by Saudi Arabia, Russia, and some others, and all of a sudden, the, the, the dire situation that we were looking at uh, is uh, not looking so bad all of a sudden. So we're getting some relief here. All right. So, John, can you pair that, the idea that uh, Libya production is uh, increasing and we're getting that into the market? Given that, I mean, is that really what's driving things way more than uh, trade war concerns and an expression of fear that the global economy is going to slow down? Well, I would argue it's a big part of it. But certainly the trade war fears are affecting commodities uh, more than anything else. Uh, obviously, soybeans and getting the headlines on this. Uh, but you're seeing copper get hit. You're seeing gold get hit. Um, you're seeing dollar strength, which is driving down these prices as well. And certainly we know that, although it's not on the official list just yet, that the Chinese had intimated that crude oil purchases from the U.S. and natural gas LNG purchases were going to be part of their uh, tariff retaliation. So uh, we're front and, oil's front and center. Uh, in that as well. So that that is definitely part of it. And the fears that global demand will take a hit uh, from the reduced economic activity. Right. So these things are all sort of coming together as the perfect storm. Uh, but Really a confluence, yes, of, of, of elements here. But, but to sort of counter that, the IEA came out with a report today saying that even if the biggest producers in OPEC uh, basically produce as much oil as they can, it, that's basically what would be required to offset potential loss production in other places. So that seems sort of bullish for prices, given the supply-demand dynamic. Can you square those things? Yeah, I think they had an unfortunate uh, printing deadline uh, this month because uh, their numbers out this morning about what the deficit, uh, supply-demand deficit was looking like, that is a deficit of crude oil production, uh, didn't figure in this rapid return of Libyan crude oil. Um, I think their numbers on Saudi Arabia were a little low as well. So they were talking about around a 1.4 million barrel per day deficit later this year. That's probably going to be no more than 200 to 300 now um, if uh, things hold up, especially in Libya. And we see more of these uh, these gains from Saudi Arabia, who is, uh, is probably on track to put out about a million barrels more oil on the market uh, if you measure it from April when they were at 9.87, uh, they're pushing up towards 10.6, 10.7 already, and may go to 11 uh, over the course of the next couple of months. So it's, it's a lot closer. 
That's when we were surging here recently, and we got uh, Brent towards 80 bucks again and WTI back up towards 75. It's because the, the math was looking terrible. Right. Uh, but the Saudis really did step up. The Russians really did step up. And this Libya thing was really a bolt out of the blue. I can't, I can't say it enough. So where do you think prices are headed in the near term for both WTI and Brent? Well, I still think it's a tough slog here for, uh, for from a consumer's perspective. Uh, the challenges, you know, remain in big time in Venezuela. There's more lost production uh, month on month again. That's continuing to decline. The, the, the Trump administration uh, appears to be hell bent on strangling Iran economically and, and foreclosing their oil sales. I don't believe for a minute that a single country will get a, a waiver uh, from from you know escaping the, uh, the the sanctions that prevent their purchasing of Iranian oil. So um, this is probably a buying opportunity, and uh, you know prices more likely towards eighty bucks for Brent. Uh, will be revisited upon us, I think, uh, uh, you know, later in the years. We're not, we're not out of the woods yet, although, although things are looking better. Well, uh, better for the upside, you mean? No, I mean better, better for consumers. I mean, Pam, I mean, you could have easily have made the argument for eighty-five to hundred dollar barrel oil if the status quo had been uh, maintained here. If we hadn't seen these um, rapid changes from right. from Saudi, from Libya, and others, uh, that 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 fever really has broken. Now, from what, given what we're seeing production-wise, well, that's where I was going to go with this. When you mention, you know, Libya, and then you've got Russia, you have Saudi Arabia. But let's just put in for the sake of argument that Iran, for whatever reason, manages to export more oil. Nigeria continues with its exports, and maybe even Venezuela gets its act together. These countries, they can't eat the oil. Uh, what would that if they all came back online? What do you think the price of oil would be? Give you about twenty seconds. Uh, I think we'd be trading back down towards $50 a barrel if we had all that production online. Plus, we'll get the return of Canada uh, by the end of September. So, um, I, like I said, I think there's a few couple more months of rough sledding, Pim, but uh, things could be looking a lot better by the end of the year from John, a consumer's perspective. So lower. John Kilduff, thank you so much for being with us. Always great to get your perspective. John Kilduff is founding partner of Again Capital in New York, talking about the oil markets. Here with us is somebody who has thought a lot about where to produce goods and how to manufacture things efficiently and well. Joseph Aboud, a chief creative director at Men's Warehouse, joining us here in our 1130 studios. He's also uh, the creator of Joseph Aboud Manufacturing Corporation, which is the largest men's tailored clothing factory in the United States. Uh, Joseph, it is so good to have you here. Thank you, Lisa. And it's interesting because you do most of your business or you do most of your creations here in the U.S., most manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, given that, do you think that you're going to be somewhat insulated from all of the trade talk or will it somehow come back to you? I really don't know what the ultimate result will be. Uh, we've been manufacturing in Massachusetts for 31 years. When I launched the first collection, that's where Joseph Aboon Manufacturing is. And we've seen a steady growth uh when we've had price increases or price reductions uh, because we've always tried to price our product fair. Uh, so the price value proposition of what we make there, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, we, um, we 60% of our manufacturing in that factory where we have 800 people 
is with our custom product. And that's where young guys are now starting to come out and buy suits and making an investment. So we haven't seen any of these, uh, these issues at the moment really impact us. Speak, if you can, about uh, the changes in the factory, and you've yeah. added workers yes. there, and yeah, what yeah, you're Pim. looking to do. Because, you know, when you think about custom suits, mm -hmm. you don't necessarily think that they can be made in the United States, but that's not the case. It's interesting. We uh, we grew organically since 1987. The first year, we produced about 2,000 suits. In the last few years, it's been over 300,000 in that 30-year period. And we have increased our workforce in the last three and a half years, we've doubled our workforce. Uh, and New Bedford has a great, uh, a great character for people with a great work ethic. We're so proud. I mean, of all the things I've ever done, I'm, I'm so proud of that factory and the people who work there. It, it's a really uh, feel-good moment, and we do create a great product. So actually, speak a little bit more about that, because we hear a lot about, quote, labor shortages, right. or companies having trouble hiring right. people in the U.S. Right. Are you experiencing the same? Well, it's interesting. We have a sign outside. One of the one of the signs that I love the most in our company is there's a sign outside that factory that says "Now Hiring," and I really love that. We have um, we really tap into the community. We have a training process when people do come in if they aren't skilled in sewing. So we see that we've supported the community. They've supported us, and we want to continue to do that. We have had that growth, and we really do see it through you know what we're manufacturing through our custom business. You used the word community, and I want you to speak, if you can, about uh, the annual suit drive that yes. you put together. Because yes. you don't just make suits, you no. also collect them. Yeah. Well, I think uh, July is our suit drive month where we basically collect gently worn clothing. We have them come into our 750 men's warehouse stores, and then we refurbish them and then get them back to folks who might want to re-enter the workforce, who might not be able to afford products. And this is our 11th year. We've raised, uh, we've we've collected 1.6 million garments, and we give them to 150 nonprofits. So, uh, good things come from good things. And I will just say, you are dressed phenomenally today. With, <laughs> I was, you walked in, and I thought, wow, <laughs> a lot I of am pressure. Put to shame. <laughs> no, um, no, it's a lot of pressure. I, I guess I dress for TV, and I didn't dress for radio. Yeah. But, <laughs> It's fabulous. I do want to get back to the idea of, you know, how difficult it is to hire right now, mm -hmm. given the tight labor market. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, are you finding that you're having to offer higher and higher salaries and that the increases are accelerating more rapidly? Well, we obviously always want to be fair to our employees. We, we, have, we have a union shop. We have a great relationship with the union. Um, I've always believed that in that area that it's been a great... Uh, uh, community of people wanting to work in a great factory. So we've, over the years, we've had the highs and lows of uh, increasing the workforce, but we always really want to dedic dedicate ourselves to the kind of people that we have, because they are, in essence, the lifeblood of the business. Now, maybe the other part of the lifeblood of the business is the customer, and just to continue yeah. the theme of the, uh, the suit drive, Yes. Uh, if you donate a suit, you get a 50% off coupon. Yes, and I think that that's also an incentive for people to think about cleaning out their closets. How many of us are hoarders? You know, you have a suit that may be five or six years old or seven years old, probably still in good shape. But are you really going to wear it, and do you want to go out and get a new one? So it's an incentive. But I really think the whole, the very essence is to be able to donate those suits and, and get them on the backs of people who could really use them. Are you a hoarder of suits? I can't imagine I, well, that. Well, I, I keep a lot of things because they're my archives. So I've got things I probably wouldn't wear from 
my first collections you would probably love. But I keep them because they're either a special moment or... See, my... it's not a closet. It's an archive. Well, <laughs> it's a museum. Yeah, yeah. My well, closet isn't a closet. It's a museum. <laughs> but I, I really think... Well, for me, it's important to keep those pieces because either they're historic for the brand or they would be great design ideas to reinterpret later on. I want so to thank you very a much. Bit, a little bit of an archive. Thank you very much for dressing up and thanks for coming <laughs> in. Much appreciated. Thank you, Lisa. Joseph thank you, Abood is the... Uh, Chief Creative Director Pimka. of Men's Warehouse, yes? Pim, I'm expecting you to come in in fine form tomorrow. I'll do my best. I, I can't keep great. up with Joseph Abood. <laughs> All right, you can follow Joseph Abood on Twitter, at Joseph Abood. And just to mention the uh, suit drive, uh, check it out on social media. Just use the hashtag, hashtag give a suit. As we continue to talk about straining relationships between the U.S. and China, I think it's important to take a look at you know what that relationship actually has been over the past uh, two decades. And with us to help us do that is Brad Setzer. He is the Stephen A. Tannenbaum Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council of Foreign Relations, also formerly the Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Economic Analysis in the U.S. Treasury Department from 2011 to 2015. Brad, always wonderful having you on. I want to just to start with a recent paper that you wrote, taking a look at uh, China's trade practices with the U.S. and taking taking a look at where uh, gripes are, are legitimate that the U.S. has with China. Can you just sort of broadly outline some of those? So, you know, I think there are three broad subsets of policies where the U.S. can sort of legitimately complain that Chinese actions have undermined the intent, if not the letter, uh, that lay behind China's WTO accession. The first is the one that gets all the attention, which is forced technology transfer. China, in theory, cannot require, as a matter of government policy, uh, that uh, a U.S. company transfer technology to a Chinese partner as a condition for market entry. However, in a state-dominated economy, China, the, 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 the viable partners uh, to form a joint venture tend to be state companies. And the state companies can say, as a matter of commercial uh, decision-making, our own commercial interest, we will require tech transfer as part of any JV. And so the net effect has been a de facto requirement for tech transfer, even though there is no de jure uh, requirement. The second is that China just makes use of domestic subsidies on a scale that no one else does. Uh, and it has a market distorting effect that goes beyond uh, that of uh, any other economy. Domestic subsidies are not prohibited by the WTO. Uh, you can only bring a WTO case to offset the adverse impact a subsidy has on your, your exports, and that process is, uh, is slow. Um, and it, it just wasn't designed for an economy where pretty much any company that has access to the state banking system de facto it has a subsidy uh, because you're, the, the intent was to prove a specific subsidy, kind of a budget line item, and that's not quite how China's subsidies work. The third is a bunch of buy China policies that, uh, you know, since you're selling in large measure to large Chinese state companies or companies uh, with heavy state or party influence, there can be informal requirements that if you want to sell to China, you got to produce inside China. 
And those don't have to be explicit procurement rules. They can just be, hey, you want to sell to uh, the Chinese railway company? It's a state enterprise. You better produce inside China. The cumulative effect has been, I think, a set of real impediments to companies that want to produce outside China and sell into China, as well as a set of of fairly onerous requirements if you want to invest in China to produce in China. Brad, do you believe that this is part of the reason why there seems to be such political frustration with any kind of relationship that's based on, quote, free trade with China? I mean, I noted your description, state-dominated economy, and then I also think about all of the companies that have participation from, let's say, the People's Liberation Army in China. Has the trading system just been set up that doesn't work when you confront that kind of state intervention on such a wholesale level? I mean, I don't think it works particularly well uh, in an economy where the party uh, controls the state and the party can exercise indirect influence over such a large range of state enterprises. It undoubtedly is part of the reason why there's bipartisan frustration at China. Uh, but you know, on the, the flip side of all this, is that uh, after the global crisis, China reduced its export dependence through a rather massive domestic stimulus. And so a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the macroeconomic distortions that China created before the global crisis have to a degree faded. So it's, it's always a little bit of a mixed bag. So Brad, this has been an issue for decades. Why hasn't it been dealt with by previous administrations? Well... At every single point in time, I think people shied away from uh, confrontation. Uh, China's a big, important player, not just in the global economy, but in the, the, the global uh, security situation. So there's always pressure to make sure that China is cooperating in other areas, you know, the North Korea set of issues, right. that kind of thing. And then for a long time, you know, there are constituencies in the U.S., that didn't necessarily want to get too tough on China. There are uh, companies that didn't want to get too tough on China's currency intervention because they, they were producing in China for export and a weak currency helped them. There are companies that are much more afraid of Chinese retaliation uh, because they've developed successful businesses in China through joint ventures than they are interested in the potential gains from a more confrontational policy. So. It, at each incremental moment, the decision was made to back away from full-on confrontation. Do you think that the U.S. economy now is strong enough that it is a good time to take on some of these issues, as President Trump and his, uh, his cabinet have suggested? Look, I think there's always a debate about whether it is better to uh, take a more confrontational approach when your economy is weak and when you could really benefit, say, from increased exports. Uh, when your economy is operating below potential, in theory, the gains from exporting are much larger than they are when your economy is operating at potential. Uh, the flip side is that uh, we are better, uh, that you, know, and you can analyze the short-run drag from the trade war as a, a reversal of a portion of the fiscal stimulus. Uh, and since there was probably excessive stimulus in the economy to begin with, in that sense, you know, it, it's a way of removing the excess stimulus 
and therefore won't have uh, tremendously negative effects. Brad, uh, give you about 20 seconds here. Um, you've served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Economic Alliance in the uh, U.S. Treasury. Just game out for us. What do you believe is really going to happen? Well, you know, I was uh, uh, a mid-ranking official in another administration, uh, and in an administration where trade policy wasn't set in the Oval Office uh, directly by the president. Uh, so my general argument now is that take what the president says on trade, both literally and seriously, and the best guide to future action is what he has said. And what he has said is that he will continue to escalate. Uh, I think the interesting question now is how China chooses to respond. Uh, we're, if we go through with the $200 billion in tariffs, we've exceeded uh, U.S. exports to China. And so China, in order to match, would have to look at non-tariff responses. Thanks very much for being with us. Brad Setzer is uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations and formerly Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Economic Analysis in the U.S. Treasury. Our next guest is a well-known name in the real estate industry. It's Scott Lawler, founder and chief executive officer at Waypoint Residential. Normally, he's in Connecticut, but he trekked in here to our 1130 studio. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. You have decades of experience in the market, and I want to start with a note that took, that caught my attention um, that Morgan Stanley wrote where they were talking about the Bank of Ozarks and their weak earning and how some of their concern that, that some of their earnings will raise concerns across the banking industry because of their suggestion that commercial real estate standards were weakening and that the area is getting much riskier. What's your take on that? So in other words, you're saying that there was concern because of Bank of Ozarks was a very active construction lender that they might have some difficulty if the cycle turns? Well, and that this signals broader weakness in the commercial real estate market, at least as far as fundamentals versus some of the valuations that are being put on them. Okay. Yeah, I think it might be a bit of a stretch. I mean, um, one thing that's very, very different about this cycle versus the last cycle, of course, is leverage levels. Okay. And so, uh, you know, at Bank of Ozarks, my understanding, would typically play as a, a first mortgage uh, lender in the construction world, uh, making development loans at reasonable loan-to-value ratios, you know, 55, 60, maybe 65%. And to suggest that we have an imminent cycle that's going to impact the performance of that loans, of those loans, excuse me, um, that's tough to see. I mean, we'd have to have something that I think um, exceeded what we experienced 10 years ago for a bunch of 60 LTV construction loans to jam up Bank of Ozarks earnings, if that was the implication of the report. I want to ask you about senior housing and uh, what you're seeing there in terms of the kind of build out that's happening. Well, you know, we've uh, gotten into that space uh, about a year and a half ago. We've done a handful of deals. We're very excited about it. There are things to love and things to hate, like anything. Uh, the things to love are pretty obvious. Obviously, the, uh, the demographic sort of tidal wave that's coming uh, represents tremendous demand for the space. Now, of course, everyone knows that, and the upshot is everyone's in the business. And the challenge we're facing is a tremendous amount of capital in the apartment sector has tried to sort of branch out, if you will, the last couple of years, from conventional into senior, student, and so on, and further geographically. And so the playing field is very crowded. Uh, senior is a very, uh, uh, how to say, you have to be very careful in the senior business. It's not just real estate. In fact, that's only part of the conversation at best. There are all sorts of operating issues. 
you have to be smart about knowing what you know and what you don't know and solving for what you don't know uh, to uh, to take on one of these one of these assets. So uh, we think we've done that, and I like the space, but you know, it's something you have to tread cautiously, and you have to be careful when the capital comes in, because if you're going to play in a, a, a space that is a little bit more operating risk, you ought to be compensated. And what we're seeing are a lot of senior housing deals where the returns are the same as conventional deals, and that's a result of capital flow. And that's when you can really you know, get burned. So you have to be very, very careful. I love the space. I like it long-term, big picture, but it's a time to proceed cautiously. Scott, I'm wondering, you know, just since we talk so much here about tariffs and cross-country capital flows, I'm just wondering, do you see a reduction in investments in U.S. real estate from, say, Chinese uh, wealthy individuals? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, where we play geographically, we wouldn't cross paths with that quite as much. You know, historically, foreign capital, whether from China, Persian Gulf, Latin America, what have you, would prefer uh, what I would describe as major coastal metro areas. So you cross paths uh, with that capital, either partnering with it or competing against it quite a bit more in you know, New York, D.C., Miami, L.A., San Francisco versus, say, around you know, Tennessee and the Carolinas and whatnot where we invest. Um, so I don't think we've observed any difference in our playing field. Uh, my understanding um, from friends who do some of that other investing is that they have observed you know, maybe a fall off, for instance, in Chinese capital coming in and so on. Um, but again, it wouldn't impact our business directly that much. Mid-sized cities in the United States. Tell us about the health of mid-sized cities for the real estate business. Well, you know, we're obviously a big fan of right. those markets. I think, um, you know, those markets represent a little bit more interesting pricing, if you will, than some of the bigger markets because of capital flow. I will say that that dynamic has changed. I thought I was really smart going some of the secondary tertiary markets five years ago. What, like a Louisville, Kentucky? Exactly. Um, or even smaller, you know. Um, we have a lot more friends who've kind of worked their way to those markets, as I was talking about before. The ex capital has drifted out not only by product, but by geography. So we don't feel quite as, you know, nearly as much uh, sort of ahead of the pack, if you will, as we did several years ago. Nevertheless, I think on a relative basis, it's still fair to say that from our perspective, the risk-adjusted opportunity in secondary and tertiary markets is superior to the risk-adjusted opportunity in major coastal markets. Now, that's a controversial statement. Many of my institutional friends, you know, will, you know I'll, I'll get some text saying, how can you sit there and say that? Really? It, it, I hear that from a lot of people. Okay. Well, that's what I'm saying. More people are coming our way. But historically, right, you know, cap rates, you know, at the, say, you know, um, as, as we came into this cycle, you know, cap rates in New York and San Francisco uh, fell quite a bit faster than cap rates in, you know, Chattanooga and Greenville and whatnot. And there's some logic, of course, to some spread. But my view is, I thought, on a relative basis at the margin, uh, it made more sense in the smaller market. So, um, you know, we're big believers in, in, in mid-sized metros. We think they've changed culturally. We think they've changed commercially. We think, you know, kids getting out of college and moving to Louisville, Kentucky is a different conversation than 25 years ago. Yeah. And so as a result, we're happy to own apartments there. We have to be, same thing, have to underwrite, you know, our, our locations and our submarkets very carefully and make sure we're comfortable with, you know, diverse and deep demand drivers and all that relative to the size of the market. But uh, to, to us, it makes ter terrific sense. And that's yeah. very important. I'm saying that for our property type. Right. If I was in the office business, I might be a little more cautious in some of those markets, you know, as I used to be. Scott Lawler, thank you so much for being with us. Scott Lawler is founder and chief executive officer of Waypoint Residential, normally in Connecticut, but joining us here today in our 1130 studios. Right now, let's head over to our 991 studios in Washington, D.C. Nancy Lines is there with World and National Headlines. Nancy.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.